0: It's easy to forget he worked on Empire, The Empire Strikes Back. Like he at that point, he had already been a professional. So his formative film going years, in addition to being schooled by his dad in the sort of Hollywood classics were those movies. This is as close to a 70s movie as he's ever made. And I don't mean just a movie set in that period from 68 to 78, I mean a movie that could have been plucked from those vaults Yes, Nestled between like Electra, Glide and Blue <laughs> and, uh, and the Hired Hand, you know?
1: Yeah.
0: <laughs> um, or the Parallax View in Chinatown and yes. really tried to make this movie in which, which channels the spirit of those films, which was, you know, paranoia, ambiguity, distrust in authority, distrust in your own reliability as a narrator, um, obsessiveness, uh, any, any number of other things. Like films in which the ending was neither happy nor necessarily an ending. Uh, <laughs> and I think that's the two things that I really that kind of color my relationship to Zodiac and why um why I go back to it occasionally is uh is that it is a film about about falling into a wormhole. It's a film about obsessiveness, which is su- something that I suffer from. And it is a film about um I mean, not to the extent that some people do. Like, could you imagine, you want to talk about obsessive. Like, imagine you did a podcast in which you took a minute <laughs> of a movie and then devoted an entire episode to every minute of that That's obsessiveness. That's so it's obsessive. Not that bad. It's, right. it's lunacy. So it's not that bad. Yeah, right. yeah. That way lies madness. But um, obsessiveness and then the, the idea that, um, that obsessiveness can cause you to unravel and that you may never find closure. And I, I find that absolutely fascinating as a film uh, just as, as a text from some uh, you know artistic text and just as a movie that i watch and see like you know zodiac what's the famous uh, madame bovary quote zodiac c'est moi.
1: welcome to zodiac chronicle a 24-part investigation into david finch's 2007 genre-altering masterpiece Zodiac, adapted from Robert Graysmith's novel by screenwriter James Vanderbilt and starring Jake Gyllenhaal, Robert Downey Jr. and Mark Ruffalo. I'm your host, Blake Howard. That introduction was senior editor and critic at Rolling Stone and the former editor of Time Out New York, David Fear. Joining me today as Graysmith immortalizes the terrifying Zodiac as executioner sketch, a contributing editor at Nerdist, Lindsay Romain.
2: An odd movie to explain to people that you like to rewatch, but I think for like, you know cinephile nerds like us, I think it's, it, yeah, a lot of us share that.
1: Film critic and editor-at-large of Empire Magazine UK, co-host of the Empire Film Podcast, and author of the soon-to-be-released Women vs. Hollywood, The Fall and Rise of Women in Film, Helen O'Hara.
3: Yeah, seriously, I was I was literally, like, uh, Googling him afterwards, trying yeah. to find, like, did he live, was he okay? Like, did yeah. he recover? And he, yeah. he did, you know, gone on to have a totally you know quote unquote normal life it's weird to me because like the savagery of the attack the attack did look immediately fatal and and it's one of these odd things where you know we're often told that hollywood makes it look like you can kind of shrug off a bullet wound like Mm. if you're a hero you can totally shrug it off and you'll be fine and you you might have to not use that arm as much but you're you're still going to be able to beat the bad guy whereas the reality is like that's you out of action for (laughs) probably weeks right i mean and i mean (laughs) like the burglars in home alone like they're super dead several times over They're like it's so my, many times so many times
1: editor-in-chief of fangoria executive producer of horror noir and Shudder's upcoming queer horror doc phil nobile jr
4: you know i was i was uh, asked to write about it on its 10th anniversary and th- those were the kinds of things that i thought about when i looked at it again that it was really was sort of like a snapshot of a kind of cinema that i mean maybe 10 years ago or three years ago when i wrote that piece or four years ago when i wrote that piece we hadn't seen Resurface on Netflix yet? I think this kind of film is coming up again, yes. Uh, and they're they're being thrown like pebbles into an ocean of, of, of <laughs> streaming services. So you, <clears throat> there, there might be a film as, as grown up and brilliant and nuanced as Zodiac hitting hitting Netflix, uh, but it's the landscape has changed so much that, it, that a film like that could never make the splash that it did, even though it was a bomb. I do say a splash because. It was significant when it came out, and 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 the cult of it sort of grew very quickly, people started to notice it, even even if it didn't make those multiplex dollars, um, I think it got recognized as something
5: special.
1: And returning, our Edgar award-winning author of She Ride Shotgun and screenwriter, Jordan Harper.
5: It's a little bit like the woman who, who sued the movie theater because of Drive. Um, <laughs> Because uh, she didn't feel like there was enough driving in it. And there's really not very much. Um, yeah, I think, especially when you there's look enough, at the lineup. There's
1: enough Zodiac in this movie, for, though. So, to it be is fair. It's very Zodiac. <laughs> it, it
5: really
1: is. Post production wrangler, writer at the film stage, and producer of the B Side podcast, Connor O'Donnell. And his co host on the B Side podcast, co founder of the film stage, and filmmaker, Dan Mecker and even the i mean all of their exchanges like that even just that the isms Jalen hall kind of coming out of nowhere and he's like jesus harold christ on rubber crutches bobby
4: like <laughs> like, <laughs> like
5: all what are these- you talking about that thing that you do that <laughs> thing Lo- starts in the looming. 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 Yeah. Good.
1: this is the fourth episode in our series pisces part two and the theme is taxi Driver.
6: Early last Saturday evening, Celia Shepard and Brian Hartnell, both in their early 20s, were sitting on this knoll of land overlooking part of Lake Berryessa. They thought they were alone, but there was a third man on this knoll, a man who wore a medieval style executioner's hood, carried a knife and gun and intended to use them. One of the worst things I ever witnessed, uh, for no reason at all, just a hooded man came up with a pistol drawn on him tied him up and then told him he had to kill him so anywhere in the bay area or anywhere he should go to the nearest law enforcement agency and turn himself in and we will try to do whatever we can to help this man
7: i considered him a robber i had absolutely no thought uh, that he was anything but that and when we were at this robbery stage i didn't consider any real threat to my life or to or to the girl or anything i really didn't consider this but i i really wanted to help him and uh he did didn't he,
6: did he seem as though he would like your help at all no he
7: didn't and he didn't even end up taking the money
6: if i remember right uh in speaking with one of the deputies uh, who was investigating this thing you said that the first thing you told a deputy uh, out there was to give some idea of a description of the man do you understand now how your mind was able to work that well under those conditions that you really did an exceptional job in that
7: well through the whole thing, like I mentioned before, I, at the beginning, I did think I was going to die. And so from that moment on, one has to have certain goals that you have to set. The first goal, of course, was to live. Uh, I suppose the second goal was to uh, get untied. Uh, the next one was to get help from getting help uh, getting to the hospital. You, know, you have to have a, a successive yes. set of goals. And if you can keep this going and you can keep your mind active. You, I don't, uh, whether you die or not, you're at least psychologically uh, attuned, whether uh, you're in shock or not. If you can keep arguing with yourself, uh, praying, uh, uh, doing, doing anything to keep your mind off of yourself, or at least just not lapsing back and just saying, well, it's no use.
6: Brian will probably be able to leave Queen of the Valley Hospital fairly soon. But where he's going from here is being kept secret in the event that the man who attacked him and killed Cecilia Shepard on Lake Berryessa a week ago Saturday, tries again. Does it seem to you as if uh, you're pretty much on the verge of finding this man? Well, I wouldn't want to say that, uh, Dave. Uh, we're hoping. Uh, we've, we've got some good things working for us. But it takes time, Mm -hmm. and to be able to reach out and pluck this guy out of the air isn't done. Uh, uh, In most murder cases, you'll find a motive. But of course, this guy is just a killer, uh, a mad killer, and you have no motive. So it makes it a little bit harder for us to track him down. It's also fairly obvious that the man greatly enjoys the publicity that surrounds this thing. Dave Monseys, Eyewitness News, at Queen of the Valley Hospital, Napa.
1: That was a KPIX Eyewitness News report from September 30th, 1969, by Dave Monsees in Napa County. This heavily edited news item for the purpose of this show was recorded immediately after the attack on Brian Hartnell and the death of Cecilia Shepard at Lake Berryessa. Here's Lindsay Romain and I, discussing the impact of the scene by the lake.
2: I think it kind of goes in hand with what you just said which is yeah there's yeah I'm like I said kind of obsessed with different crimes and stuff of this time and the thing that like when if I had to like distill Zodiac down to like a single moment that I just will never stop thinking about it is that lake murder scene Um, because on top of Zodiac being a movie I really love it's also one of the few movies I'm not somebody who scares very easily like in terms of like actually really haunting me. And Zodiac is one of the
1: I, I'm a, <laughs> I'm guilty of jump scares. Like, like yeah, yeah, yeah. I I yeah. love a jump scare but I'm like, you, I can go home and I will I can watch three conjuring movies in a row and then just go to sleep. No
7: problem. Yeah,
2: exactly same. I can fall asleep. I, my old roommate used to make fun <laughs> of me cuz I would like fall asleep watching The Shining and she's like, well, <laughs> I'm like I just don't I don't get nightmares really about that kind of thing. And so <laughs> I'm not very easily afraid, but something about Zodiac when I first saw it haunted me to my core. And the scene by the lake where the couple is stabbed is to me one of like the most chilling moments I've ever seen in a film. And it's because I think when you're obsessed with stuff like true crime and 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 that sort of thing, it's you it's very rare as humans that we will ever witness a, a murder. You know, it's not something that is very luckily hopefully most of us won't experience in our lifetimes and most of our access to that idea of like what that would look like and what it would be like is cinematically and so I think seeing something like that just done so bluntly it just it feels literally like you're a fly on the wall of this like scene just watching these people be brutalized with no score and and no real flashiness to it that really like got to me because it made the stuff that I'm interested in really real. It makes the victims really real people and it makes you really have to like get in the headspace of, of what something like that is.
1: Hearing and seeing the real Brian Hartnell in his hospital bed describing the attack that would create a localized cosmic rift in the San Francisco psyche and hearing Lindsay articulate that emphasis on the victims. It's precisely the frame I want to stare through as we approach the final Zodiac killing rendered in the film. That KPIX report is riveting. Hearing the awareness of the pragmatic reality of any investigation and the hesitation to claim you'll be able to catch a motiveless criminal reminded me of a great discussion I had with Jordan Harper about another famous serial killer, the Yorkshire Ripper.
5: I've been thinking a lot with watching Zodiac about the Yorkshire Ripper Um, Do you know much about the Yorkshire Ripper? I
1: do little bits, but I'd love you to tell the people listening.
5: Well, you know, uh, there was a man who was killing prostitutes in Yorkshire, England um, in the uh, late 70s and early 80s. And he got the name the Yorkshire Ripper. He really didn't. It didn't get really bad. Uh, meaning the the hunt for him didn't reach a a fever pitch until he stopped only killing prostitutes and also killed a a few young women who were more acceptable to throw on the newspaper covers and have people uh, worry about. Um, And in the end of the day, they they caught a man named Peter Sutcliffe who had at that time killed 13 women. Um, And they caught him because he was in a car with a prostitute and a couple of beat cops were going to go and arrest them for, you know, solicitation. And he said he had to go uh, take a piss and he walked around the corner and the cop followed him around the corner and found him ditching the hammer uh, that he was going to use to uh, probably kill this woman. And so, look, it was, it was dumb luck. These things are very rarely broken through some kind of like detective breaking something and, and delivering the front door, you know, the killer to your front door. Um, and the thing about uh, the Yorkshire Ripper that I think is a direct parallel to Zodiac is this idea of the failures of the police departments as we've built them to catch the exact kind of people that people use for the reason why we need cops. You say, defund the police. Well, how can you defund the police? How are they gonna catch all the serial killers? And it's like, A, there aren't that many serial killers. And B, they don't. <laughs> um, the Yorkshire Ripper, Peter Sutcliffe, when when they found him and arrested him and got him to confess for the crime, they then went back to the files of the Yorkshire Ripper case, which were so many that they had to reinforce the floor of the records room that they were in um, because there were so many tons of paper. Because this was all, you know, pre-computer, early computer, so it yeah. was almost all handwritten notes. And so this was essentially one police department that was doing all of the investigating. And Peter Sutcliffe's name appeared in those files eight times. They had interviewed him eight separate times for eight separate reasons why he might have been the Yorkshire Ripper, including one, which was that they found a, a bill in a in a prostitute's hand that she had been paid for this trick before being murdered. And they were able to trace that bill back to a payroll uh, dispersal for one company, 40 employees. One of them was Peter Sutcliffe and they cleared him, I think because his wife said, no, he was home that night, something like that. And then they never put all of this together. And you see that play out in those middle scenes uh, with Donal, uh, Donal Logue and uh, see how I say Donal? Cause like, you know, we did Gotham together, <laughs> um, all those, um, Great middle scenes with like the Vallejo, is that how you say it? Um, police department, the Riverside Police Department, um, and how they all had different pools of information. This is like a really big deal, particularly in the pre-computer age of the you know sharing information or the failure to share information. Um, because this isn't what police departments are built to do. They're not built to catch somebody who commits essentially motiveless crimes, particularly when they cross jurisdictional lines. Um, and one thing the Zodiac, not the movie, but just the whole idea of the Zodiac killer does, is create this idea, or help create the idea of the super intelligent serial killer. Yes. Which is a front for the police department's inability to catch serial killers.
1: And from one Ripper to another, He's Phil Nobile Jr. on a story that starts with a walking tour of the murder scenes of Jack the Ripper.
4: Yeah. Well, on the jurisdictional front, I I did a walking tour of uh, Jack the Ripper's kill sites when I was in London once upon a time. Amazing. There's a great, there's a great writer named Donald Rumbelow and he gave the tour and he talked about how some of Jack the Ripper's killings were on one side of this line of like city of London. And, and the other one was in like the sort of the larger municipality. I don't, I don't have the language to, to describe it, but short version is some of these killings were uh, one police department's jurisdiction and some of them were another. You know, as you said, like he doesn't even, maybe he doesn't even know he's doing that, but it just fucks the investigation because these cops not only aren't cooperating, they don't want to cooperate. Yes. It suddenly gets political and they don't see that so much in Zodiac. There's, there's a little bristly-ness uh, between the, the, the three different uh, jurisdictions. But the the idea that, it's a really defeatist idea, but we're, we're not set up to cooperate like that and, and he doesn't need to be some puppet master pulling strings so much as we're just going to get in our own way. Yes. So that's that's horrifying if you stop and think about that, that the people that are supposed to protect us and keep us safe will be too busy bickering to get yes. the job done and the killer gets away. That's part of the horror of Zodiac for me is that in the real world, it's not going to be that tidy and we're going to be our own problem, which is you know the same message of most of like George Romero zombie movies, whatever. It's never the zombies. It's, it's the people <laughs> bickering and fucking it all up. Um,
1: if they could just true. get along in a fucking supermarket flush <laughs> with supplies, if you could just you get would, along...
4: Yeah. You take aisle seven. (laughs) Uh, But yeah, it never works out. And in horror, in in horror fandom and in horror writing, there used to be uh, a line of criticism that was like, it's not believable that the people would do the dumb thing. It's not believable that we would make the bad choices. And 2020 has spent all year telling us that's not true. We Uh will make the worst decision. We We will be the scorpion stinging the frog because that's what we do. Zodiac was lightning in a bottle in a way because I don't I don't think he could have possibly planned for the fact that if he did the killings in different jurisdictions that the police would just be chasing each other's tails and not even know that shit was happening in the other yes. jurisdiction. I don't I don't think he was that level of a mastermind, you know, and that's part of us like aggrandizing him into something, <laughs> you know, mythical, some 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 mastermind Hannibal Lecter.
1: And now, on to the scene.
7: boy lived the girl didn't again. Okay, can you imagine
1: surviving something like that? From the gruesome scene, back to the newsroom. As Avery predicted, Graysmith is the perfect passive sounding board to his theories, thoughts, and predictions. That is, if you can bear his now incredible rendering of the Zodiac's description. the
7: dates on the side the car, got two Vallejo killings, now there's one in Napa. What the hell is he doing out of Vallejo? Sweet mother
1: what are you drawing? I'm wondering if this is a police sketch, or a fan art in some ways. It is absolutely both things. Graysmith's sketch has made a scarily vivid impression of the killer. Odd shape and weight of the outfit. The accessories. Kid at the lake, this is what he said the Zodiac was
7: wearing. There's
1: a wonderful All the President's Men homage here as Ed Satrakian's Al Hyman asks Avery if he's finished the story.
7: Oh, that's a hell of a get-up. Hyman, I wrote
0: it. It's done. Now i just got to type it up.
7: Type it up? It's not finished until you type it up. I've got to read it.
1: Listen to Dustin Hoffman's Carl Bernstein in almost exactly the same scenario, with Jack Warden.
7: Bernstein, why don't you finish one story before trying to get on another? I finished it. The Virginia legislature story? I finished it. All right, give it to me i polishing i yeah, work the phone. Polishing you. Yeah, you work the
1: phone. Both of these guys are similar. Reputation as ladies' men, cynical, they cut corners. But Avery isn't going to be swayed by the counterbalance of Graysmith's odd straight man. His path to self-destruction and infamy is engorged by his fame by proxy. This, dear listeners, is something we'll be truly saving until later. The Chronicle is the hub of the movie. In the banter between Avery and Hyman, Graysmith is hit with an epiphany. He knows where he'd heard the phrase from the first letter.
7: What's that? That's a zodiac at the lake. What's the story with a kid? He seems a little like, touched or medicated.
1: Here's Connor O'Donnell and Dan Mecker and I discussing a little bit more of that Robert Danny Jr. magic. Is he touched? Is he I medicated touched, or is he medicated? Touched, is he medicated? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Is he medicated? It's the most beautiful. It's a, it's, a, he it's, it's a, it's <laughs> yeah. a, ho- yeah. it's no, he's a fucking Boy Scout, you know, he yeah. doesn't drink, he doesn't smoke. Does anyone call me <laughs> medicated? Like, it's just one of those beautiful things. But the Gray Smith character, in essence, in that moment, is like, "Oh, is the coffee good?" Again, the person who serves the coffee and the cigarettes and sells them, Shorty, yeah, Shorty, just points to the sign, like, <laughs> yeah. "Coffee's always good." They're you know, like, just don't even ask me a question. Like, little yeah. characters like that, moments like that. Well, and
5: and, and then the Gyllenhaal at his at his most October Sky of it all. <laughs> yes. Is, yes. Like, is, yeah. is, is, is like is like. Um or it's the most <laughs> Moonlight Mile, if you will, very underrated movie. He he goes like he goes, um the he says the short he's like you would get upset that people call you Shorty, right? But it's like <laughs> yeah. not a diss.
0: Like nice. Robert Graysmith is a guy. He's like just He's earnestly, like asking, earnestly him the question. asking. And Shorty's just like,
5: You're upset people call you Rita? He's like, People don't call <laughs> And here's the thing to bring it back in that scene to Downey Jr. is the best. Uh, like, is he like.
4: That, that though, I feel like that line especially feels great because that kind of feels like. Downy doing that it as opposed like, like it feels it like him. Maybe the line was just medicated, and then it he was like, like, he
7: like he medicated or kind of touched. Or, what's the story with the kid? He seems a little like touched or medicated. Or, Christ, or, man. yeah, man, so it? fucking boy scout. He doesn't smoke, he doesn't drink, he doesn't curse. And he's back. I knew it. Man's the
1: most dangerous animal of all. I knew that, I heard that from somewhere. The most dangerous game. He runs into the reset section and grabs an article featuring the most dangerous game. Count Zaroff's scar has clearly had a strong influence with some adjustments for additional anonymity to the Zodiac's most recent executioner disguise.
0: It's it's a movie about a count who hunts people for sport. People, the most dangerous game. That the, that's that's the, Count
6: Zaroff. Zaroff. With
1: the Z. As we transition out of the chronicle, we come to one of the iconic locations of the film: San Francisco's Transamerica Pyramid. It's a metric for time passing in the city. In these early moments, it's incidental. Later in the film, the persistent unknowing can be read in the changing face of the landscape. Here's Phil Nobel Jr. on the blistering opening of this film and its purpose.
4: Yeah, all the all the all of the splashy stuff that you're going to put in a trailer. Goes, yeah. goes in the first 25 minutes, and, they're, and they are beautifully executed sequences. Uh, and each one's got its own energy. Uh, you, there's the, the chilling Lake Berryessa murder, which I mean, I, how many horror movies have I seen in my life? I edited a horror magazine for fuck's sake, like that, <laughs> that 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 murder rattled me because I in, in 2007 I didn't know the details of the case to the degree that I was going to be like, Well, this is what's going to happen now. I didn't, I was absorbing it. As a, as a novice, as a, a newcomer to the story, more or less. And uh, the way the way the Lake Barriessa murder is is just blocked and staged. And, and it's just so... Uh, it, the, there's something just so nauseating about the quiet of it. It yes. just disgusted me. And he knows that that's going to work because he just gave you like a Scorsese-esque one that sets to music. <laughs> and Paul Stein's murder is done in a completely separate style again it's almost like the most lavish grand theft auto type thing (laughs) with that with that overhead drone shot and whatnot and presented in its own way but it almost feels like like a boxer warming up like fincher's like doing these sequences to get you know to get limbered up and obviously he didn't shoot it in sequence so that's not true but you you watch these three sort of beautifully uh executed sequences and and i think that's it's such a splash of cold water when the rest of the movie is about the frustration and the dryness and the uncertainty. And it's all very intentional. It's it's all to put you in the, the shoes of the, the protagonists who, who were alive in 2007, Toski's passed since, but who, uh, who will spend their lives feeling like that who will spend their entire time on earth, not knowing. Um, and Fincher, it feels like he's rubbing your face in a little bit. He, you know, he, he's, you're only going to get, <laughs> You're only going to get two hours and 40-something and minutes of, of that feeling.
1: And here's Helena Hauer and I discussing the lure of true crime.
3: I wonder if the fact that it comes to essentially no conclusion, mm. kind of, is part of that. Like I, th- I feel like, again, people like the crime stories, and especially true crime stories, that have some sort of resolution a lot of the time. You know, oh, he was the evil, husband but it. that's because... <laughs> the, he, the husband did, or, or, or you know, the serial killer was evil, but it was because he was horrifically abused as a child, and there is this, or he was, you know, traumatized by his time in the army, or whatever it was, and there's this sort of, not quite knowability of it, because I don't think, there, there is always this disconnect, there's always this thing that we cannot, as hopefully sane, you know, non-serial killer people, understand, there, there's some kind of fundamental break that we can't quite follow them on, but... I think the best movies about this have to kind of examine what the hell it is and there's a challenge to, you know, our sense that the world is a fundamentally good and decent place to some degree we can argue about how far but like I'm not really here for nihilism so I believe <laughs> that to some degree we oh, yeah. are generally good. And I think you do see a lot of that in the in this in the first part of this film. You see people turning up to help victims. You see people taking it upon themselves to break ciphers. You see people trying to figure out what is the best way not just to sell newspapers but what is the best and most rational and sensible and safe thing to do here and and so i do think people try to look out for each other but serial killers don't see that and serial killers don't abide by that and so there is that kind of break that they have that the rest of us don't it's that lack of empathy and i think that's what we're kind of with a lot of these true crime stories and a lot of these serial killer stories trying to explore what is it that you don't have why are you Why are you like this? Why are you like this? Oh my God.
1: In the commentary of the film, writer James Vanderbilt and author James Elroy observe the upcoming shift in pattern. So far, Zodiac has targeted couples, isolated areas, often parking for their privacy, and he comes upon them. In contrast, the cab driver killing is a senseless, impulsive act. Cab drivers and prostitutes are so often the victims of these kinds of crime because they're around, they're available. They're anywhere, anytime, across the expanse of a major metropolitan city. Here's James Vanderbilt from the film's commentary track about the creative construction of the cab ride.
0: The reason, from a writing standpoint, I did it this way is there was nobody who survived that cab ride, so how do you show the cab ride without being in the cab, you know? Because it, it completely avoids the question, did they have a conversation? Did they sit in silence? And so rather than lying, we get to kind of kill two birds with one stone. And and, you know, sort of get the radio call-in thing, while at the same time not show, you know, not have to make stuff up about what Zodiac did.
1: I love that once it establishes the rules of the shot, the fixed locked-off distance from the cab, mapping the city, another functional decision that ultimately helps us better navigate the worlds of 60, 70 San Francisco. But it's the deliberate leap to another layer of focus. And another, another with faster increments. We arrive to the scene. This acceleration is better than a countdown stepping closer and closer to our front row seat. In the film, the figure playing Zodiac may not look like the figure we've seen at both crimes until this point. In another stroke of genius, it's not. In the most deliberate reasonable doubt, they cast the actors to fit the descriptions from the mostly living witnesses and victims. This results in several different actors playing Zodiac. In a lot of ways, it's a cinematic lineup that shows the essential fallacy that memory alone is photographic, save for those exceptional few among us is David Fee on the choice to cast different actors to play Zodiac. It's always the line where it's like the thing that scares
0: the thing that scares men the most is being humiliated and the thing that scares women the most is being killed. Yes. By men. Like <laughs> it, you know, it 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 hurts because it's true. It's yeah. funny because it's true and it's, you know, scary as fuck because it's true. And you you really get the the sense of that here. I love to I always wondered if Fincher was was pulling a page out of the um, out of the William Friedkin's cruising Mm. playbook and uh, and had like a different actor playing the Zodiac in every scene, because if you've seen cruising or, you know, a little bit about cruising, he switches up the actors playing the killer. Yes. And so, you know, which obviously uh, let me let me let me send a geek explain this. (laughs) There's mansplaining, but now there's geeks planing, I guess. (laughs) To me, that I always love that that notion, um, not just because it's, you know, so so clever, uh, but more because a the idea of the killer being this kind of anamorphous figure that the victims projecting their image onto, yes. either an image of desire, they find this person desirable, and that's why they are drawn to him, and then the flame turns out he's the flame and they're the moth and they kill him. And and the idea also of just being uh this killer. The killer and cruising being something that's just this weird, ever changeable figure in the culture. It's not just one person. It's almost like the abstract notion of a killer, of a homophobic killer. And Fincher is just the kind of like clever cinephile, although if you watch the director's commentary, not too clever, he's not gonna make the same cars pull up next to each other in that <laughs> opening park scene. He doesn't no, but, no. like no, but just clever enough that he would be like, oh yeah, that would be a great little thing to do for this too. So much like the people trying to find this guy, you can never get a bead on him. Yeah. In one scene, he looks like this. In another scene, he kind of sounds like this. In another scene, it appears that he has the same physique, but does he? I can't really tell. Uh, yeah, and...
1: Uh, he's he's, and he's then, done... He's It's that perfect meld of cinephilia, like the cinephilia of like, oh, I love that technique because of that whole mutating force element. But then it's also the the incredible obsessiveness of going, what is the physical description of Zodiac at each of these crime scenes? <laughs> and literally yeah. going, I want a guy that looks like that. Oh, this guy's 20 pounds heavier. Cool. For the next one, I need the guy's 20 pounds heavier. For the guy that's you know five, six, six inches shorter, I need him for the last one. And there are three guys who, who, who all aren't John Carroll Lynch, who play the Zodiac in those four scenes. Um, And some of them sound like John Carroll Lynch. So there's like the fourth Zodiac is a guy by the name of John Lacey. And I spoke to my friend, Vashi Niedomanski, who's an editor and an editorial consultant, and he was working on a John Lacey movie. And he goes, Blake, whenever I hear that fourth Zodiac, so the Zodiac that we talk about in the Ioni Sky scene, I've worked on, I've edited scenes of John Lacey so many times that I know it's his voice. And he's like, so when it gets me, like I get a vision of John. But, and, you know, for us as a passive viewer, you're like, no, that has to be John Carroll Lynch's voice. Finch is messing with us or whatever. And it's like, no, he actually just got guys and they did their own voices. And sometimes they sounded like that. And it's just, it's a strange thing.
0: Yeah. And it works. It works on so many levels, not just the truth of the subjective level, but the idea that you're, and this is so much of what Zodiac, the movie is about to me, is that the ground is never stable. No. You're never quite sure what's happening, where it's happening. I don't mean narrative-wise, like you know where you're at. He's very you know, meticulous about putting up that, the, the when, where, how, what day, practically what hour of <laughs> any scene that's happening up there so you know right where you're at, but more the idea of like, who is the Zodiac? Is he going to strike now? Am I watching a crime scene? Do these people make it out of the crime scene? Um, what clues have he, has he left behind? what are they going to find? What are they not going to find? What tangent is this going to throw them down? I mean, is this, is this a dead end at all? Like that's so much of what makes the movie compelling for me is you're, you're consistently re-questioning everything that you're watching and how it affects the scene that came before it and the scene after it. And I know a lot of movies do that. You can name a dozen, hundreds of movies that do that, but there's something about the way Zodiac does it that, um, that I find just so incredibly compelling and interesting and, and creative.
7: And that will be all for the news on the 20. We've got curfews in effect tonight for the following counties: Napa, Solana, Contra Costa, Alameda, Marin, and San Mateo. So please, everyone, stay safe. Vic in San Francisco, you're on the line. You're not scared of the Zodiac? Heck no, he's only shooting those farm kids. What scares me is those hippies out in the hate if free love and weird clothes. We've got Alfred from Vacaville. You no, know, I think that was really offensive. It's not just farm kids. These are nice, clean-cut young people. Hey, hey, nobody's downplaying the loss of human life here, Albert. Well that last guy was. We have good solid community.
1: Let's start with the fact that from a functional perspective, it allows the color of the city by hearing talkback radio recordings to reflect the sentiment of the emergence of Zodiac. Cabs, especially the yellow cab of this time, just happened to be a major character in one of the most iconic American films of all time taxi driver. Scorsese's formal invention and mastery, entangled with the psychotic perspective of Bickle in command of the vehicle, resulted in a litany of iconic and infinitely homage shots. This topographic drone-style view charts the research ethic of the filmmakers without ever having to enunciate any specifics. The lengths to track the route of this pickup to the eventual bloody destination in the research adds a whole different layer for anyone watching. A layer of incredible detail in a brief scene. This reinforces the intent of the film to stay the course with the most factually accurate portrayal of Zodiac's crimes. This is a sequence that escapes the pure speculation with a formal choice.
7: We have good, solid communities out here in the North Bay. Unlike in the city where you have Satanists running around well you bring up a good question is the zodiac a satanist amber from oakland what do you think i, I don't
4: really know but the, i just know that the codes that they printed didn't look very christian but i think the bigger problem is that the paper shouldn't have printed anything that the zodiac has been doing that they're just
0: printing all that stuff to sell more newspapers
7: well the zodiac did demand they print his letters or he'd kill more people
0: yeah but he would have done it anyway whether they
7: printed it or not I think- yeah, an interesting point. So we do
1: you not do you hear a word exchange between the driver and the passenger. Instead, at the culmination of the ride, you see the headshot. Callous. Cruelly casual. What do you think you'll do next? <laughs> Transition from a disturbing view of carnage from a bench seat in front of the car to a craning shot that eventually takes to the windows of the witnesses. Contrasted by the panic call of a family whose kids witnessed the shooting, is the pillaging. What is he doing? San Francisco
3: Police Department. Yes, there's a cab. What is your location? 3390 at Washington, at the corner of church. When can we think he's robbing
1: him? Is the crime
0: still in progress?
1: Yes, please hurry. And the kill itself is clinical. That cannot be said of the other kills. It's a disarming thing because decades of populist and prescriptive pattern recognition, I like puzzles, reinforces that killers function the same way and do the same thing the predictability and patterns ultimately informs their downfall. Here's Lindsay Roman again on texts that make us think about the victim rather than the killer.
2: Yeah, and I think it's important. Like I was saying, as somebody who's into all that stuff, it gets you fall down the, those rabbit holes of information and puzzling stuff out and you forget about the humans who were actually victimized in these just terrible ways. And I think I really appreciate any kind of true crime story that takes you into that actual perspective because a lot of them don't. And that's why we see a lot of stuff. We see a lot of those complaints nowadays that, you know, we're all just sensationalizing these murderers and we're idolizing them. And it's so, you know, we just like think they're hot or whatever. There's just like always a lot of different takes about how we're supposed to feel about serial killers. And I think when you do something like this and you actually let you linger in the violence of what actually happened, it really just, it makes it all real. And I don't think a lot of films do that. And it's, yeah, it's, feels weird to say, but it's just really beautifully done. And it, yeah, that's why it lingers with us because it feels so absolutely real and so tangible. And it's so quiet and it's so weird. Like, you know, if you, I was listening to somebody <laughs> recently talk about how they, they've once were like witness to somebody in a fight, like in a punching fight yeah um in real life and they were like that's another thing that you don't see that often like it's it's something that we see a lot in movies and they're like in real life when you're witness to something violent like that it's just kind of weird like there's just like you don't have the like you know the mental wherewithal to really like grasp what's happening and stuff and you're just like watching two people fight and it's just like this sort of out of, out of body experience because you're just like what is happening my only real like accessibility to this kind of like violence is yeah is through cinema or through through television or something and so yeah and and you actually like see it in real life it's awkward and and weird and that's how that death scene is it's it's almost awkward there's a lot of like flipping around of bodies and just like these things that yeah that you don't really think of and that are kind of messy I, i think that's also something that relates this back not to keep bringing up the manson family again And and again, to tie back to, like, my fascination with true crime, it it was so easy for me to get lost in those details. And both of those cases are things where the victims are almost more famous in some ways than the killer. I mean, in the Zodiac case, it's because we don't know who he was. But in, you know, Manson's case, the the victims really are the people that you think about most, I think, when you think about that case. And I think that's an important, you know, thing to have when it comes to this stuff, because, yeah, it's... it just it was it was a very eye-opening thing for me when I first watched this movie and realized like once it's over who am I thinking about I'm not thinking about the Zodiac killer because I don't know who he is but I'm thinking about those those faces that we see you know being murdered or or nearly murdered and so yeah I just think that that it creates this empathy that a lot of these types of films and these stories even documentaries don't really understand and (laughs) I think that's another reason why it kind of stands the test of time is because that's just something that sticks with you. That human story sticks with you more than just, you know, if they were faceless people that you didn't really care about or that you didn't have, not that we spend that much time with them, but like, I don't know. There's just, they they feel very tangibly like real people in the little like nuggets of time we spend with them. And yeah, it just, Fincher does an amazing job of making every little moment really like Stick in your head, yeah.
1: He's Phil Noble Jr. on what it's like to produce true crime content.
4: I produced true crime for a number of years for for different television networks in the states, and really, it gave me it gave me a different uh, outlook on on uh, our responsibility, I guess, as to like what we should and shouldn't be making entertainment out of. The short version is, I really lost my taste for true crime in in the in the in the process of making it. I, I interviewed women that were chained in a serial killer's basement for five months who had their eardrums popped out so that they wouldn't hear the mailman come. And, um, and you know, I've shaken their hands and they, it feels like a, a bird skeleton in your hand. They're, they're fragile, broken people. And it, it really changed how I uh, look at true crime. And so uh, that's a long way of saying that, that I still find Zodiac to be a, a remarkable achievement and, 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 a, and a piece of art and, and something that, you know, that is a, an essential piece of cinema you know it says a lot for it because i'm i was ready to throw it all in the trash
1: <laughs> yeah I, I mean that's something that a lot of people have asked me phil is like oh you're a true crime fan and i go nope. not at all nope. i have no desire I, I i have no i have no desire to and and you know that you know um, in australia one of our uh cable networks is called crime investigation network cin i don't know if it's in the states as well or maybe we named, have
4: an analog share
1: yeah and Some people are like oh i I love crime investigation network i watch all the shows i'm like i have no desire at all to watch about to watch the mechanics of how a serial killer did his thing um it's it's i don't know i but i feel like that it it, it, kind of cuts because when you see the real people i think that's the you know and all that like uh all that dramatic recreations that are kind of subpar in my mind, you know, <laughs> like, it's those just like, I did this. <laughs>
4: um, and you know, those parts, those parts were fine, because it was a matter of like, how do we film this without, you know, crossing this line
1: or that line? Um But like but- the jinx, the jinx, for example, which I think is a terrific right. uh, true crime uh show is, you know, it does that you have to do some kind of recreations, you're trying to make something cinematic. Um, sure. there's there's borderlines on that that I think there's exceptions to the rule. But
4: oh yeah, and Errol Morris is a brilliant filmmaker who's ah. done great stuff in the true crime space. I liked I used to like to tell my boss that the FBI took agents off of these kinds of cases every six months for mental health reasons. And I spent 18 months looking at crime scene photos every day. Uh and there is one there was one, <laughs> one particular day, I forget the serial killer, but like here's the weird disconnect. So it's someone's Absolute, it, It's someone's death, you know, worst case scenario. But if they survived, it's their worst day ever. Right. Yes. Um, but the people that you're getting your material from, it's the most celebrated moment of their careers. It's some 65 year old dude in Florida who caught a serial killer. He's proud of himself. He's, he's right to be proud of himself, but he gleefully will FedEx you all his photos and you go to work one day and you open the box. And the first thing you see is a 50 year old woman who's naked, except for a pair of shoes and a knife sticking up out of her as she's lying on the bed. I, that happened to me one day, I closed the folder, went back, went back home and climbed into bed. And so I'll, I'll try again tomorrow. <laughs> it was, it was
1: horrible. Um,
4: can you, and
1: this is like, can you please give me a disclaimer about what the first shot is? You couldn't have just done the ground with the cutout or something like
4: not put a post-it a, on there post it anything but you know when you, as someone who had to make that stuff you you realize if you've ever wondered well how how do you figure out what is and isn't okay to put on tv you find out you're the one that's making the call you're the one that's like i absolutely can't put that on tv but you had to look at it i had to look at like a woman whose face had looked like it had turned to onyx because she was face down in the mud and decomposing and there's like Every crevice of her face was sort of filled in with maggots. Like, you don't forget that, and mm. and, I, and I and I did it for eighteen months. These guys spend their lives like doing this stuff, um, so it just really turned turned the way I look at all this stuff in in, a, in a, I think a permanent way.
1: The song that's playing as Zodiac is ransacking Paul Stein's body. Vanilla Fudge is bang bang. That's right, you know the words. You shot me down. I hit the ground. That awful sound.
0: San Francisco Police
1: Department.
3: Yep, there's a fate in a cab.
0: What is your location?
1: 3390 at Washington. At the corner of one When can we think he's robbing is him? Is the crime
4: still in progress?
1: Yes, please hurry. Here's some final thoughts from Will Mobile Jr. And Helena Har.
4: To to me, it introduced the idea of of a, a a psychic nationwide level of uncertainty. I think we had a pretty good, or we thought we had a pretty good handle on where we were in the world. This is good. This is bad. The, you know the the uh, and fuck. We were like really. I think 2020 is going to give 2001 and run for its money ultimately. But but the idea that. I mean, I grew up in the 70s and the 80s, and we were in the in the sort of the ass end of the cold war, but things were pretty settled. We we never we hadn't been rattled like that on, on a level that, as you say, changed the way we go about our daily lives. Um, and although I don't think he gets into it in a cultural way, in terms of like, I mean, there might be some montage stuff in there with like the kids in the school bus and whatnot maybe but but I, I think the film itself is more about um addressing it on a, on a personal psychological one-to-one thing with it, with the individuals in the film uh and 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 the the way this incident sort of knocked them off their axis and the movie's got to end eventually but he took it as far as he could in terms of showing how they're spun out forever they they never like dave tosky went to that corner every year until he died you know trying trying to get his head around this case this 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 book that he's forever missing pages
3: to i guess that's what's common to so many of the stories that scare us like it's it's the same thing it's kind of the same thing with zombie movies like yes. there's there is an element there's a, a large degree to which we depend on each other. And we don't consciously think about it every day. But every time you step outside your front door, or you don't even have to, there are, if there are other people in your house, you are relying on those people not to kill you. You are relying <laughs> on those people to be good people, you know. Um, you are trusting that when you walk out of your house in the morning, somebody won't just randomly be shooting in all directions and hit you. Like, on the most fundamental level, we have to trust each other not yes. to do... Um, and, and luckily most of the time that's not difficult but you know when you've got a zombie movie it's obviously the whole of society breaks down when you have a serial killer movie it's one person but you don't know who it could be anyone could come for you at any moment and it's the same fear it's that same mistrust that you know breaks down the social order steals as you say all these quintessentially American experiences, or European, or anywhere else. At the corner of Sherry,
1: when can we think he's robbing him? Is the crime
0: still in progress?
1: Yes, please hurry. This concludes zodiac chronicle pisces part two be sure to subscribe to our show so you're the first to know about all upcoming episodes if you can't get enough Unplug zodiac sessions will be available exclusively on the one heat minute patreon linked in our show notes this episode of zodiac chronicle was researched written and presented by me blake howard the music of zodiac chronicle is composed produced and performed by chris duffy of los espinas our companion i am not avery zodiac chronicle stickers and pins were done by the talented amy reed you can find on Instagram at, at ai.me.me or via email at amyread 310 at gmail.com. Until next time, good bye.